1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, He, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted— we always have that sense that power is about getting my way, yeah. and if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet, sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it?
3: Yes, and uh, you know it's amazing how often, you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because of course the first chapter of Genesis begins with. God, the creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little uh robots obeying my commands. Um and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realest form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realest form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities.
2: And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning. That means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes.
3: That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little Real power.
2: And it's interesting Uh, you mention that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda uh, Berry and and two other girls. Uh, and, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he had uh, held these girls in in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else and you think well there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls and yet the deeper you get into the psyche in the story, well, you know. begin to realize no this guy's not powerful at all in fact he's pretty powerless
3: yes and the, and you know Paul uh, will use the language of impri- imprisoned or slave. you know a slave. Especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master, and Paul says, if we really get gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We we don't end up being masters, and that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um appealing and so deceptive because actually once the man and woman get what they want what we want to be like god without having to be in a relationship with god they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the, the one who would be master ends up being, becoming completely so mastered
2: by it. Re- really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think, for example, about Jesus there during the 40 days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And, and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer... <laughs> Very God himself, here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth, and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? (laughs) It's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human
3: being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And and that's true. Uh we you know, we're made in the image of God, we're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God only God can give and Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to to say no.
2: Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand hmm. that it, it it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mention this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are crea- is the demonstration of creative power.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have, a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that. Actually, for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do, or you are in charge of some people, you you actually are given power not for your own flourishing, but for their flourishing. So one of the most Im- important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? <laughs> and if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care, are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power.
2: If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships. Not with, just with God on the, uh, uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation right after this.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power. We also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good, used for good, or power being good, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power? We're, we're, we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs>
3: Yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God, and we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the really the question is not whether you're playing God or not, it's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image, you're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false God, the God of domination, the God who has to get his own way, or it will reflect that the image of the true God, the God who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, so it really comes down to what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit. And you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish.
2: This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, uh, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who, who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire things of this sort, uh, and, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather mm. sharing it with others to to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps the, the, there's a, a certain power of shared power, isn't there?
3: Absolutely. And I think that 's a a wonderful model and uh, in a way, you know I think power really is it 's supposed to be used to serve um, that is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what's serving
2: Well, is. We, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily have said, well, huh. my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his Son did on the cross. It's
3: amazing. And you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the, the giving of God and God's Son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary, that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to contri- even to command and control everything but starts recreating right in the midst of it and ultimately is going to make everything new it says in revelation that's real power to <laughs> the ability to make all things new to wipe tears from people's eyes from everyone's eyes um and We, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers.
2: How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle Uh, that we have yeah. With God, and uh, th- th- of course that that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about ana- analyzing Andy the way we're using our power, either to good or to yeah. evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a-, a redemption of power?
3: I think that's a fantastic question, and you know, I would start with our. Uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us, I think the place to start is to ask, very, to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear how am i using whatever power i have um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands can start at home it can happen in the workplace to say you know i have power in this position perhaps and asking the people who are affected by that how am i doing and making sure that they can an- answer honestly now that takes time that takes building trust but i think other people well, the other thing that happens most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power.
2: Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our in our relationship with God. Mm. So then I, so once
3: we've started to uh, hear from our neighbors (laughs) how we're doing, I I think there's a huge place for, you know, what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. It's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. Then, When you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how, how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food, and you discover how much you need God. Uh, so I think the spiritual disciplines... Are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God. And it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice
2: these disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power.
3: He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagine. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know take each other to court, <laughs> he says, "Look, don't you know we're going to judge angels?" I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into His creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So, God, you know, this is the the. The great lie is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, (laughs) when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine, but it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be
2: kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this. Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. <clears throat> we look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it
3: exactly and the good news is god is at work in all this and uh... that very thing that can electrocute (laughs) and in a way did electrocute his son right his son suffered the worst that human power can do that God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well.
2: You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book, I'm gonna get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights. Pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as uh, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift
1: of Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, Added to this list, one that's not... Not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that, um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, they're anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are a uh, persistent fear disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions.
4: Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. Thus, Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And... What we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and a theocracy and 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 forcing everyone to become Christians, which we saw as nonsense. But these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, uh, uh, unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger, and so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it is it perfect? No, but until I can find a better term. That's one I'll use.
2: Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia?
4: I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or theocracy or or, or theology or things of that nature. And so it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia.
2: As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is... um an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by governments. It's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this. And while perhaps not reported on with any frequent on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary to this notion of, of, again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia?
4: Well, you know, at one point, the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control of society, for good or for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power, and so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East, uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigoted themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians.
2: So this notion, doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but and there are certain cases where um, the the, the so called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups.
4: Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which you know doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, there they, 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 clearly is an intolerance, and in their in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well educated as tolerant. So. It's, it's very hard for, for, to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use, uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia.
2: There are those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there. And by that, I mean this, Dr. Racism. I mean, clearly, an individual, they're they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual uh, a sense of, uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it?
4: Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had.
2: We're going to take a timeout on that point point. come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief timeout back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, Doctor, Uh, seemingly... what's the best way to phrase this uh, inconsistently applied and and by that I mean uh, for example if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a, a clear Christianophobia they may not necessarily take objection to I don't know say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen and yet uh, they will rear their 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office for example why does it seem to be inappropriately or or, or, or in, in not not consistently applied.
4: Well, I think that those with Christianophobia they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable, and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. It's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable, uh, and of course, some of the some of the values uh, I think most Christians will be comfortable with, but others. Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values, and that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I like disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance.
2: There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, um, create this uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which, in this so-called melting experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface Um, is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia?
4: You know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people did not have to do anything about it and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the uh, so way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for... a variety of different reasons and now so they are going to use that power.
2: What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias?
4: Okay, you know that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, if we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today. So where, where's where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt. You're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do do this this and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics. And I asked them, if you knew that this person belonged to this group, would you be more or less like to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out a person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. so. There Now you have a situation where, while that even Joker Haram may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society.
2: All right, toward that end, it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question. Uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with: Westboro Baptist Church. And I and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional, conservative, evangelical, Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet, they pull on the moniker of, we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore, there there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people, that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders?
4: Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist oh even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin and we sin against other people uh you know, having to say race uh there's sins Christians have done historically concerning racism uh and we can look at other problems so so christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect and and now people are coming and attacking them. however, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive and so while yes, Christians are not perfect. Christians have done some things we've victimized some people. Uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems, but that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented. I told you about when it comes to academia. So. It's sort of a, sort of a both-and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians, but we also deserve not to be shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the
2: public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. and yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, they're, they're there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that uh, to would agree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia?
4: Well, in my book I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point. For, for who knows how long but we still have a right to have a voice in the public square so I believe we have to fight for that voice in public square on the other hand we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other we're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas uh, arts, uh, entertainment academia where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice and we can grow as a group if we are careful, Uh, you know, if we we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable.
2: And as you mentioned, we've just kind of skimmed the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias, the book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through many of the usual suspects at Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, George Yancey com and Professor Yancey thanks so much for the time and the insight Hostile environment understanding and responding to anti-Christian bias
1: opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership staff or management of KFAX copyright Salem media Group all rights reserved